My guest and conversation partner is the Reverend Dr. May Elise Cannon, who is Executive Director of Churches for Middle East Peace. And May, that's how I know you, because that's where we met when I became involved in your organization. And I'll just say a little bit more about you before we start our chat. Uh, You are, of course, an author. And we're going to be talking about uh, not one, but a few of your books today. A speaker, an advocate, who cares deeply about God's heart for the poor and the oppressed. May is co-editor of Evangelical Theologies of Liberation and Justice, editor of A Land Full of God, Christian Perspectives on the Holy Land, author of Social Justice Handbook, Small Steps for a Better World. That one really captured my attention. And Just Spirituality, How Faith Practices uh, Fuel Social Action. And uh, that doesn't finish your library here, your repertoire. Uh, You're also co-author of Forgive Us, Confessions of a Compromised Faith. Now, before we go into you and your titles here, uh, I'd like to just read one review that captured my attention by Steve Porter at the Journal of Spiritual Formation and Soul Care. And uh, this would have been on, uh, oh, I didn't make a note, but probably uh, Social Justice Handbook. Uh, He says, Cannon has presented a timely and well-written book on how spirituality can fuel social action. Her decision to show this process through the lives of seven Christian leaders helps make the book more effective. The Christian Church has wrestled with the interplay of spirituality and mission from the start. Cannon helpfully adds to this discussion with a clear call that when it comes to spirituality and mission, it is not a case of either or, but both and. Now, May, I'm going to make a confession right out of the gate. I have not (laughs) read your work yet, but I'm so happy to discover it, and it's in my to-be-read. The one I'm going to start with is Just Spirituality, How Faith Practices Fuel Social Action. I'd like to spend most of our time there with you. But first, can you tell us a little bit about yourself. You know, I've always thought ministry is made of biography. Can you tell Mm. us about your own formation? Sure. Well, thank you for having me. And I um, am humbled to be a part of the conversation because I don't consider myself in any way, shape or form a Bonhoeffer scholar. And yet I'm looking forward to talking about, (laughs) you know, his life and ministry and theology has impacted me deeply, uh, particularly, you know, as I've become an adult. Um, my spiritual background is quite interesting. I often say that I believe the Holy Spirit drew me to himself. Um, my family background was a little complex. My parents uh, grew up in non-Christian homes and then had a profound profound conversion experience where they named my brother, who was older than I, 
after the person that led them to know Christ. His name was Daniel. Hmm. And uh, when I was a little girl, we had just um, a number of tragedies that affected our family. I had a cousin uh, who was about our age who died at five years old because of a heart defect. Hmm. And my parents were devastated. And I think, you know, as young new Christians, it really challenged their faith. How could God allow this innocent little girl, you know, to die? Hmm. And so my mother prayed every night that God would keep her children safe. And my brother was killed in a hit and run car accident less than a month later. Uh, He was only four years old. Um, So my spiritual background goes back to, you know, when I was two years old, my parents dedicated me to Christ, my parents had this profound faith, and then they went through such profound loss. And so when I say the Holy Spirit drew me to himself, I often feel like God was faithful to my parents um, in calling me to himself, even though Uh, in many ways, shapes and forms, their own faith was just profoundly challenged. Um, Wow, your identification with the suffering, which I pick up over and over again in articles about you and by you, Mm. started very early. And unfortunately, your encounter with human suffering. Yes, you know, I um, unfortunately, that hasn't changed more than 40 years later. Just earlier this month, um, I lost my other brother. Um, He took his own life. Um, And so tragedy has been a part of my family journey and uh, a part of my journey in seeking to understand, you know, a God who is good, a God who is faithful. And I believe that to be true. And yet the world is not yet fully redeemed. So what do we do in the midst of human suffering when the world is not yet the way that God fully intended it to be? Well, now you're sounding terribly Bonhoeffrian because, of course, <laughs> suffering was so much a part of Bonhoeffer's own personal experience, but also <laughs> his theology uh, at its very core. So you know both. You know it personally and you know it theologically, and you've written beautifully about it. If I may ask, sounds trite, but sometimes geography tells you a lot about it. A, a person. Where did all? Where was all this happening? Where did you spend your childhood? So my childhood was in rural Southern Maryland, um, almost as close as you can get uh, to the southern tip of Maryland on a little peninsula. Um, so I grew up in Calvert County, mm. um, which it's not very far from D.C. I mean, it's I think forty-eight miles from the White House to where I grew up. And yet, um, the culture there is very rural and very, very, very racially divided. Uh, You know, when I was growing up, the community was African-American and white. Um, There were very, very few other families of color. And there was a lot of racial divisions. So some of the people who most invested in my life from the time I was in elementary school and then middle school and high school Um, were black men and women who told me bits of their journey and invested in me and um, shaped really my view of race and of justice. And um, so I think that context actually is quite profound in terms of, you know, my own understanding uh, of oppression and the need for liberation. Well, when you say Calvert County, Maryland, which isn't far from me, although a body of water separates where I am in uh, Arlington County, Virginia, but it's not that far away. Um, But uh, Frederick Douglass comes to mind. Yes, 
Part of his drama was lived out uh, in that general area of Maryland uh, where he was enslaved. So the history of the black community in that part of Maryland is certainly a complicated one. That's right. That's right. Well, so uh, you weren't born and reared an evangelical minister, (laughs) but you are today. I am. Uh, Tell us about your calling. Yes. So my family background, my father was Irish Catholic. He's one of 13 brothers and sisters. And when I became, I know, I have 70. That's Irish Catholic. That's the true credential. (laughs) I have more than 70 first cousins on that side. And that's not even an exaggeration. (laughs) Wow. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. They took that. Uh, they took that commandment very seriously. So, um, I when I became when I was baptized, I was baptized in a PCA Presbyterian Church of America, um, you know, which is pretty conservative theologically. Uh, and when I was baptized, I got a note from my uh, grandmother, you know, who was devout Catholic, and she said to me, "I'm so glad you found Jesus, but I'm devastated you're not Catholic." Uh-huh. Um, and then I grew up in the summers going to spend, you know, a week uh, every summer, you know, with my great aunt who was a Catholic nun. And so when I was a little girl in elementary school, you know, when they used to tell you, what do you want to be when you grow up? I used to say I wanted to be a nun because the sisters got to marry Jesus. Uh, you know, it, it doesn't get much better than that, right? Right. <laughs> So I always had this deep faith and um, I would beg whatever neighbor would take me to church to go to church with them. So I came to Christ in an Awana program at a Southern Baptist church and I sang in a... Kind of a Christian Girl Scouts. Right. That's Mm -hmm. right. Bible verses. And I mean, they literally said, you know, do you know where you're going to go when you die? And I said, no. And they said, do you want to go to hell? And I said, no. You know, and then they said, do you want to know Jesus? Because then you won't go to hell. And I said, yes, please. Uh You know, and I often tell people, I feel like God honored my decision, even though the methodology of recruitment, I think, you know, could be a bit more um, sensitive, if you will, Mm -hmm. or... So I always kind of had this deep calling uh, in terms of my faith and in terms of my relationship with Christ. But at that point, I didn't have a theology that allowed uh, for women to be in ministry. And so um, I often say I was called to two things in my life. Um, One was to ministry, and then my second calling was to the Middle East. But um, I did InterVarsity, if you know InterVarsity Christian Fellowship in college, Um, and That'll be familiar to most of the folks listening, listening. But, but not all, but uh, so yeah. you can give maybe just a one-line description of sure. InterVarsity because you publish with them as well. I do. Several of my books have been published with InterVarsity Press. So InterVarsity Christian Fellowship is a student group at universities around the country, a number of very prestigious academic institutions that really focuses on the evangelical aspect of the good news, the study of the Word of God, but then also the um, mobilization and engagement of our intellect. You know, so um, the chapter I was in was at the University of Chicago. And I was always very interested in, you know, Bible studies, and it was my dream to go to seminary. I always thought it would be avocational. So um, I was on my way to become a medical missionary in China. I had a master's degree uh, in bioethics. I applied to medical school 
school, I was accepted. You know, I'd already spent some time and done some mission work in China. And about three months before I was uh, to go to medical school, I was having a Bible study um, in Chicago in a Golden Nugget, which is a diner, not a <laughs> casino. Um, and Thank you for clarifying that. I know, I know. When I tell this story out on the West Coast, to. I get into trouble. <laughs> exactly. So I was sitting there with the Bible open and um, had just had this uh, Bible study with a young woman, and she had left. And Rob, you know, I haven't told this story in a while, but um, God does not speak to me clearly often. Uh, but I had such a clear sense in my heart that God said to me, this is what I've called you to do. And I didn't know what it meant. I just knew it meant not medical school. Um, and at that point, again, my theology was such, I didn't think that I could become a pastor or that that was a legitimate application of the faith. But I knew without a doubt it meant not medical school and it meant something with ministry. And right after this happened, there was an elderly couple that were sitting across, you know, at the booth next to me. And they might have seen the Bible and they might have heard this study, but there's no way that they would have known that I had this internal revelation, you know, this mm. internal encounter with God. And almost immediately afterwards, the gentleman turned to me and he said, um, he said, young lady, the Lord has a profound call on your life. Be obedient to it. <laughs> and, you know, I look back at that, that was 20 some years ago. And I often think if I had not had such a clear calling, I don't know that I would have stayed in it because being a female evangelical pastor, let alone someone who works in Palestine and Israel and the Middle East, uh, there's quite a bit of earthly resistance. Yeah, and it doesn't stop there. And I'm going to ask you a few questions yes, about that. Yes. But yes, that's quite a, a resistance factor there. I mean, uh, to you, even within an awful lot of American evangelical culture, that's right. Women only fit in particular places in, in the ministry scheme of things. So I want to ask you a little bit more about that, but sure. I don't want to interrupt you. Say on. No, so you accept this call. Yes, yes. Um, and, you know, we had, I already had some student debt from my first graduate degree. And so the fleece uh, that um, I put out was uh, I started seminary a few months later. So it was January 2013. And um, I could only afford one semester. And I got a partial scholarship initially. And so I just prayed, God, if this is what you want me to do, open the doors and make a way. And within just a few weeks of starting seminary, I found out I received a full scholarship a presidential scholarship from North Park University in the Evangelical Covenant, which is now the denomination that I'm ordained in. Uh, and it was such confirmation that I didn't just make this up, but that God would provide a way. And so those doors were opened. Wow. So then when were you ordained? I was ordained in 2018. So I graduated mm -hmm. from seminary, Masters of Divinity, and then um, I did a business degree in parallel. Graduated in 2016 and then had to serve um, in ministry for a couple of years before receiving ordination in 2018. Well, 20, 2008. I'm getting all my years mixed I, up. I wondered. Wow. I wasn't going to 
I wasn't going to challenge that for obvious decade. reasons. I have the wrong decade. I started seminary in 2003. Oh my gosh, I'm so old. That's, no, and I didn't want to be misread, so I wasn't going to challenge the calendar on you. But since you set the record straight, yes. yes. I set the record straight. Take so away 10 years from all those dates. Let, let's just say you're beautifully seasoned in ministry. You, you have a few years under your belt here. Well, that's kind and, of you. And a lot of good work, a lot mm-hmm. of very good work. Uh, and, and, and I want to take you there, if I may, because sure, before I explore the specific contents of the book I'm most interested in reading first, but I want to say, where have you been in my library all these years? Mm-hmm. I, I should have had you on my shelves long ago, but I will now uh, and, and, and get a lot from it. And you've been just a great blessing to me as I've sat at the table with you with Churches for the for Middle East Peace. Uh, that has opened a whole new horizon for me and, and I know for many. And, and by the way, you get a, another Bunhofer ding here, uh, a credit, because, of course, well, I'm going to give you two. Uh, <laughs> because, number one, you are not culturally provincial. And he was—he saw the church, uh, mm-hmm. the limitless boundaries of the church when it came to culture and even geography, mm. but uh, also uh, the ecumenical nature of all of this. Your formation with the different streams of Christianity and yes. uh, even your present place in the evangelical world is not what one might think at least today as sort of a conventional expression of evangelicalism. And and that's where I kind of want to get to. But first, as a woman in evangelical ministry, what kinds of challenges does that present to you? Sure. Um, Well, so there are some that I would describe as um, invisible, you know, kind of presuppositions. One of the greatest challenges is that when people look at you and see, you know, your gender, um, the presupposition uh, or just assumptions of what you bring to the table or what you don't bring to the table. So, I mean, just last week I was in a meeting with um, a group of international religious leaders, bishops and heads of churches, and they're wonderfully respectful, but there were 16 of us on the call and I was the only woman around the table. And so just, you know, the context of in the traditional church, Orthodox, Catholic, Evangelical, in the traditional church, women are not viewed as having spiritual authority or or having experience in the context of ministry. And so the assumption that you don't have something to bring to the table because of your gender, like all of that is often unstated in those contexts, Mm. right? It's just the behind the scenes, invisible assumptions. And I'll never forget, you know, my ministry started at Willow Creek Community Church in Chicago, a very large evangelical megachurch. And I was talking to one of the pastors there. And at that time, the church had 25,000 people or so. And he said to me, may, you know, his experience and his pastoral wisdom was, if you're just faithful to what God has called you to do, the opportunities will come. 
And I think he's right on one hand. I mean, I told the story about seminary. God will provide a way because nothing is too big, you know, for God. But I think actually he was speaking from a very white male privileged perspective because that's not been the case for me. Um, You know, I have three master's degrees and two doctorates and 20 years of ministry experience. And... um, you know, I- I'm considered by some to be one of the leading Christian voices on the Middle East in the U.S. context. And when you go to the major conferences and things uh, that are addressing issues like the Middle East, I'm rarely invited. Hmm. And I- and I'm not saying that to be, you know, oh, woe is me, or I'm not. Um, but sometimes that whole, you know, be obedient uh, voice from that gentleman 20-some years ago the Lord has a profound call on your life. Often it feels like the world doesn't see it that way. <laughs> you know? And so what's it mean to be faithful when people don't read your books or when, um, and it's not about the book sales. It's about being faithful to a call. If God yes. has given a call and we're faithful to it, I sometimes wish I played basketball. At least you know when you score a basket, right? <laughs> like, yes. You know what success looks like. And so what's it mean to be faithful in a world that often overlooks people because of their gender or because of the color of their skin, you know, or because of some other form of oppression. Um, I moved to California and was an executive pastor. And at an event that was there to invite me to the other pastors in the community, like the whole event was all about, you know, inviting me as the new pastor of one of these churches to get to know people. And someone came up to me and asked if I was the new secretary at the church. And, oh, that's sobering. You know, I mean, I, not that it's bad to be a secretary to church. Of course no, not. I mean, that's as right. legitimate a place of service as any. But the presumption that you presumption. can't be anything but one Rob, thing. I was wearing a clerical collar. I was a chaplain in a hospital in Chicago for several years. It was a Catholic hospital, so they wanted me to wear a clerical collar because I was younger, and everybody mm-hmm. thought I was a nurse or thought I was. So they wanted me to wear a clerical collar, and you know this was like in the spring, and I was wearing my clerical collar, and I was on the elevator, and a surgeon got on, and he said to me, "What is this Halloween?" Because I was wearing my clerical collar. Wow, that leaves me speechless. Uh, I, I, wow. Wow. And those are just microaggressions, right? Yeah. I mean, that that's not yeah. the end of the world and, and that type of thing. But the bigger issues are the systemic issues or the letters that I've gotten of people telling me I'm not honoring God or, you know, in terms of some of the work that I do now in the Middle East, let's just add that to the dynamic. I've had people say I'm the Antichrist. I mean, I've had, um, there's a a real uh, pressure when you seek to be a prophetic voice, which this speaks to Bonhoeffer, right? That there's a real earthly resistance when you seek to be a prophetic voice against injustice. And it might be small microaggressions, but there's a deeper systemic resistance that I think spiritual as well as earthly. Well, as a white male in this cultural setting anyway, it's easy for me to say, yeah, but Hmm. you live this. And it tells me again that your identification with and understanding of the marginalized is far more than theory. You, you, you have a, a real experience with that, and, and you bring it to bear in your leadership, 
or service, however you want to define that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in your writing, uh, and it's one of the reasons I'm so attracted to it, because, again, you're not a theorist. You're not uh, sitting in an ivory tower somewhere. Uh, you're fully engaged, and you bring that to bear in your work. And the title I'd really like to get to, starting maybe there, uh, sure. you know, what part of your own life experience, your own um, ministry experience uh, informs, for example, uh, the title I'm, I'm almost preoccupied with now, mm-hmm. uh, Just Spirituality, How Faith Practices Fuel Social Action. Uh, it's been out for a few years, but mm-hmm. I, I can't mm-hmm. think of a title I've seen recently that's more relevant to what <sighs> the evangelical church, but society in general right now. I mean, I'm talking right now in yes. this moment of time. And and this is, again, you know, we always say this podcast is about the lifetimes and interests of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and one of his interests was, of course, what is the will of God in this moment of Mm. time, in this Mm. instant? And, you know, asking that question now, uh, how faith practices fuel social action, we're watching it play out. I literally watched it out my window yesterday. Mm -hmm. A witness of church leaders who are in the streets with the marginalized, with the suffering, and it's their faith that informs that. Can you tell us how your own journey with that Hmm. part of your calling? I often say um, that I write about what I want to know. So I don't necessarily write in any way, shape, or form thinking, oh, I'm an expert on this issue, let me write about it. I write Hmm. as a journey of discovery. And in that regard, what I wanted to discover and what I wanted to enter into and to study more deeply, which I did, you know, looking at the lives of Mother Teresa and Bonhoeffer and Watchman Nee and Martin Luther King Jr. and, you know, the Arab singer Fayrouz and Bishop Tutu and Oscar Romero, I wanted to know what allowed them to be sustained in the heart of suffering. What allowed them to be sustained in the midst of global crisis or, you know, World War II, you know, with Bonhoeffer's story? And and I also wanted to know what distinguishes the presence of those who call on Jesus in those places? So what's the spiritual difference between social activism you know, in the secular world versus social activism that's inspired by people who self-identify as followers of Jesus. And, you know, I'll actually quote a pastor I just was in conversation with last week. I mean, he's the pastor of Trinity um, United Church of Christ in Chicago, Otis Moss III. He's Mm. the son of two civil rights leaders who were married by Martin Luther King Jr. And I was talking to him about this, this very question of how does our spirituality compel us or keep us in the game. But I was specifically talking about despair. And so, you know, I I shared just a little bit of my own journey in terms of my personal life and losing my brother a few weeks ago and looking at the world in terms of coronavirus and 
uh, civil unrest in response to systemic racism, um, which so desperately you know needs to be dismantled in our country. And, and I sometimes feel despair. And one of my uh, quotes that's been a breath prayer, which is a spiritual discipline, um, has been that despair is the luxury of the privileged. Who am I to despair when there are so many people who don't have a choice, you know, of whether or not to engage? And so I was talking to Reverend Dr. Otis Moss about this, and he said to me, he told me the story, one that we all know well, of Sojourner Truth and... Um, about her journey and about her faithfulness. And um, I w- and he talked about how the source for her activism did not come from herself. It came from such a deep transcendent faith in God that if she had rested on her own strength, she would not have been able to be faithful. But because she was motivated by this depth of intimacy with God, it literally fueled her activism and fueled her engagement in addressing, you know, systemic issues. Mm. Um, and that, that for me, I thought was just such a great encouragement that we need not rest on our own strength, um, but that God will give us what we need and not give us more than we can bear. By the way, I don't know why. Oh my goodness, my memory is failing. What's the matter with me? I was so impressed with the film, the recent film on Sojourner Truth. Uh, the title, somebody's going to think of the title, and I'm all alone by myself here uh, in my home studio, so there's nobody here to slip a piece of paper in front of me. But anyway, there is a drama, uh, not, not, uh, it released not too long ago on Sojourner Truth, really worth watching, and you see that play out, not, not in a not in a kind of, um, you know, superficial treatment, but the depth of that faith. And, of, and, and that would be true of all of the names you mentioned that you look at in this study of talk about biography. But the one we're most interested in, of course, is Dietrich Bonhoeffer. How yes. is it that you included Bonhoeffer in your life? So his book, Life Together was one of the foundational discipleship books that was shared with me by people who mentored me and then that I used with all the students I was meeting with, you know, when I was working with InterVarsity uh, Christian Fellowship. And so that little tiny book, Life Together, about what, uh, you know, it, it, much less um, long uh, than cost of discipleship, but still all of these kind of uh, rules of life, you know, in terms of what it means to be in the context of community. And that was so formative for me. And then the other question about Bonhoeffer that I really wanted to understand is, you know, in my work on the role of religion and conflict, was that he, my understanding, you know, was a complete pacifist, and then really became an interventionist to say that, the atrocities of what was happening in Germany, you know, under the Nazi regime and under Hitler were so um, egregious that one was morally obligated and spiritually obligated to intervene. So I often describe him as an interventionist. And Mm -hmm. so I wanted to understand what was that journey of being someone who believed in nonviolent activism or resistance to someone who actually, you know, was a part of a plot to kill Hitler. Um, Because I felt like that had to be a spiritual journey. You know, he was such a theologian. I don't think that he did anything lightly that there must be 
have been conviction um, to contribute, you know, to the way he was understanding those decisions that he made. I'm, I've often said, you know, if all you know of Dietrich Bonhoeffer is cost of discipleship uh, and his martyrdom, you've missed yes. 85% of him. Uh, yes. And yes. that journey that you're pointing to is a huge part of that. And, you know, of course, we, we read between the lines in ethics his magnum opus, this tome yes. uh, that was unfinished at the time of his death, that in fact, this was the most complex journey of his experience, uh, was getting to that place of being willing to risk all uh, out of moral responsibility. So uh, Bonhoeffer's really part of your, when you said uh, that life together is part of your spiritual formation as a yes. Christian, I, I, was, I was getting goosebumps because most people read discipleship, what is now <laughs> uh, retitled uh, discipleship, but was for so many decades the cost of discipleship. People have read that, but they haven't gone any further. And life together is just the beginning of that further experience with Bonhoeffer. Uh, and I mean, the fact that you treat it, uh, you're making me, I'm gonna, I think what I'm gonna do is put aside the two or three books I'm working on now and just grab yours. <laughs> <laughs> And we're likely to make it required reading uh, at, at the Bonhoeffer Institute. Um, mm. But but tell us a little bit uh, yes. of the response you've gotten to, to the book. And, uh, of course, again, we're kind of, uh, you know, uh, we're a little provincial ourselves in the sense that I'm particularly interested in what kind of reactions you get to, including Bonhoeffer and that part of his Christian experience Yes. in the book. What do you hear? Yes. So um, before I respond just to how others have engaged with the materials, some of the um, points that for me were so profound was, I, I, as you described, um, cost of discipleship, you know, if all you know about is his martyrdom and that resource, how much you're missing. I was so profoundly moved by what I learned about his life of prayer, both in the underground seminary, but of course, after, you know, he was arrested and what we know about his prayer life and how prayer compelled and motivated and just seemed to be an undergirding spiritual discipline in his daily life. And so in that regard, I just wanted to read a quote, if I may. Please. I think this comes from Christ the Center. And it's, um, what I wrote is, Bonhoeffer believed deeply rooted theological understanding and praxis were critical components of Christian discipleship. And in referring to this, he proclaimed, here, in Christ in the Center, is an arsenal from which the confessing church would draw many of its weapons to defeat the German Christians and thus prevent the poison of Nazism from destroying the church. Hmm. That my understanding is he actually viewed spiritual discipline and spiritual faithfulness. You know, when we talk about our battle is not against flesh and blood, you know, I don't think he's talking about defeating German Christians in any way. Um, 
in a uh, triumphalistic way. I think he's talking about the fact that the church became so co-opted by Nazism and was so unfaithful and so losing of its prophetic witness. The way that that's retained is by spiritual discipline and by prayer and by centeredness on the person of Christ. And so some of his kind of work of that intersection of how our spirituality can be in a constructive way used as a weapon against you know, in these spiritual battles that we're in, I think that's quite profound. Um, so, sorry, I just... Um, <laughs> no, I'm so glad you said it, because uh, when, you know, any number of us in the Institute are asked, you know, well, what, what was what was Bonhoeffer's uh, struggle really about? You know, uh, we know him as so many things, uh, but the way I summarize it is his his real struggle was for preserving the integrity of the church of mm-hmm. its witness of the gospel mm-hmm. and when you mentioned the german christians the deutsche christian movement uh which uh adhered to a very corrupt heretical diabolical distortion of the gospel yes. uh, which made blood and soil and the fatherland and even the person of adolf hitler uh, you know, who was declared by the Evangelische Kirche, the Evangelical Church, declared Adolf Hitler a gift and miracle from God. Mm. Mm. You see the extent of its spiritual corruption. And this was his, his entire vocation, his calling was to preserve the church. And there's evidence that he intended uh, to do that with the rest of his life had he survived the war, which, of course, he didn't. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. uh, what kind of reactions have you gotten yes. to your work, and in particular to Bonhoeffer's inclusion? Yes. You know, so I, I wasn't... Um, I think that this book, the Just Spirituality book, it was well-received by people who already understood what it was about. Um, but I don't know that it really penetrated, you know, spirituality and even spiritual disciplines is often viewed as very suspect within American mm-hmm. conservative Christendom. Um, no and kidding. S- yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I say as one who emerges out of conservative American evangelicalism. Yes. And so it's suspect, right? I mean, spiritual disciplines, they're kind of loosey-goosey. They're they're not, um, you know, it's not the same, uh, doesn't have the same credibility, breath prayers, you know, as systematic theology. But I think for others, spiritual disciplines are suspect. And then, you know, you would know much more about this, but I peripherally understand there's quite a debate. You know, the Bonhoeffer book that Eric Metaxas wrote, I heard was quite criticized because of trying to claim Bonhoeffer. Bonhoeffer as an evangelical and say, wait a minute, he really was not, right? He was evangelical in terms of the good news of the gospel, but not in terms of what we understand about the evangelical movement, at least in the U.S. context today. And so I think because the book was was mostly received well by people who are already in this broader, you know, context of understanding spiritual formation and even more broadly ecumenicism um i don't it did not receive significant critique um but i'd love for more conservative evangelicals to read it <laughs> so would and, i so you know, would i it was and meant I, to be a resource in that context yeah well i hope i hope we can tease them into doing so because it would be a gift mm-hmm. uh, your work is a gift 
to every brand, every stream of uh, Christian community. Uh, you know, you, you you have Catholics in the mix in the book. Uh, you have uh, Protestants, Evangelicals. Uh, do you have an Orthodox in there? Uh, do you have a I member of the Orthodox? I don't have an Orthodox. No, I have. Um, it's it's broad in terms of the global representation. You know, Watchman Nee from China. Oh Fay yeah, Ruse, of I think this is the only chapter that's been written in English about Feyruz. You know, she was a Lebanese folk singer, uh, still alive, um, quite elderly, very devoted to Jesus. Uh, during the Lebanese Civil War, the different sides of the war were trying to co-opt her music because she was such a national symbol. And so she was penalized and her music was taken off the radio because she refused to sing for one side over the other. Um oh and so it's really interesting, you know, a number of people in the Arab world, when they hear that I have a chapter about Feyruz, she's more famous and has more um, keys from international cities than Frank Sinatra. Really? Uh, so, yes, yes. So Amazing. anyone in the Arab world, secular, Christian, Arab, you know, they would certainly know of Feyruz. Um, sure, I heard about her in Morocco when I was doing my work. Uh, in Morocco, in a dialogue between American evangelical leaders and North African Islamic leaders, she was her name was invoked by both sides, by yes, Christians in right. Morocco and uh, by Muslims. That's right. Uh, with Muslims esteem her music. That's right. Yes. Very, yes. very much so. Well, uh, the Reverend Doctor May Elise Cannon, uh, what a joy to know you, uh, to watch you at work. Uh, to read uh, the, the, the product of your heart and, uh, and mind, both of which are uh, wonderful assets uh, in the work of God. So I'm sorry, uh, I'm probably pushing the patience now of our listeners, maybe not with you, <laughs> certainly with other guests I do, so I don't want to yeah, uh, push them too far, and it's always too short because there's too much to say, but... I want to remind you, uh, those who are listening in to the, our conversation here, uh, lots of good titles here, Evangelical Theologies of Liberation and Justice, A Land Full of God, Christian Perspectives on the Holy Land, Social Justice Handbook, Small Steps for a Better World. That's my next read. Uh, no, no, that will be after Just Spirituality, How Faith Practices uh, Fuel Social mm -hmm. Action, which I see as the relevant message for our moment, and forgive us, confessions of a compromised faith. And something tells me, May, that you're not done writing. Well, there's actually one more, Rob, oh. that just came out on Monday. So my newest book is, um, and the only reason I mention it specifically is it's the most relevant to this moment in time. Oh. It's called Beyond Hashtag Activism, Comprehensive Justice in a Complicated Age. I saw um, it and I actually wrote it down in my notes and failed to mention it. Oh, I'm no, so no, sorry. no. I just, <laughs> no. Tell us I about just, it. So um, it was meant initially to be kind of a 10-year, you know, social justice handbook came out in 2009, but it really is looking at how can we as the church who are so divided politically here in the United States, how can we learn to disagree and to have creative solutions to injustices while not compromising on addressing realities that are systemic, like systemic racism. So it looks at race, poverty, gender. There's a whole chapter on police brutality 
There's a chapter on white supremacy and white privilege. I mean, it's not an easy book by any means, but it really, I think, speaks to this moment, you know, as our country struggles um, in seeking to address a lot of the current realities that well, uh, are in the news today. Jesus warned us to beware of things that are too easy. That there the road that it. leads to life is hard. So you give us a little lesson in that by producing maybe a book that isn't so easy. It's mm. hard, but well worth mm. it. And, and here's how embarrassed I am. It's literally up on my phone. I wanted to be sure that I mentioned it, and it's right here <laughs> staring me in the face, and I, and I missed it. So I'm going to oh, uh, no. tell everybody about it. Beyond hashtag activism, comprehensive justice in a complicated age by May Elise Cannon, two ends. May, what a pleasure to chat with you, and we're going to put links to all your resources um, in the text surrounding this podcast. So folks, don't worry if you didn't write it down. It's there in live links. You'll be able to get a hold of it. We remind you, uh, if you who are listening choose uh, to buy through Amazon, which I always do, uh, choose smile.amazon.com and please list the Dietrich Bonhoeffer Institute as your designated charity. And every time you buy May's book, you help her work and ours. Mm -hmm. So it's a good deal for everybody. Uh, mm -hmm. Thanks for spending this time with me. And I look forward to my next time with you around the table for Churches for Middle East Peace, which is more great work. Take a look at it, everybody. Thank you. Thank you for having me. What a, what a blessing to be in conversation. Thank you. Likewise. Thanks, May.